0: This is the Parenting ADHD Podcast with Penny Williams. Each week, Penny shares proven ADHD parenting strategies and her hard won ADHD mama wisdom. This is not your Physician's Podcast. Penny discusses the genuine grit of the moment-by-moment peaks and valleys of this special parenthood. She'll lift you up and empower you to help your child and your family thrive. It's time to beat the chaos and challenges of raising a child with ADHD. Here's your host, Penny Williams.
1: Thanks for joining me again on the Parenting ADHD podcast. I am really honored today to be talking to Kurt and Anna Warner, who have just written a fantastic book called The Warner Boys about their lives um, raising twin boys with autism. Um, Really excited to have you here. Will you just take a minute and introduce yourselves to our audience
2: Yes, uh, my name is Kurt Warner and my wife, which is sitting here next to me, uh, her name is Anna Warner. And we are privileged, uh, very privileged to to be on your show, uh, your podcast. So thanks for inviting us. We look forward to it.
1: And people might know you um, from football. Do you want to tell us where you played and when?
2: Yes, uh, I I am the other Kurt Warner. Uh, I played for the Seattle Seahawks uh, from 1983 to 1989, and then I finished up my career with the L.A. Rams. Uh, So yeah, uh, early mid eighties, early eighties, and uh, had a I, I would like to think a fairly successful career. Yes. In
1: the NFL. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. So let's start chatting, I think, about your book, um, which is wonderful. Um Really, I love how it highlights both of your voices and your experiences from both of your perspectives, because everybody kind of goes through this journey of a special brand of parenthood in a different way and processes it differently. and, And it was really... Um, enlightening to me to read both of your perspectives about different things that have happened as you've raised your boys with autism. Now they are, I would say, on the lower functioning level of the autism spectrum. Is that correct? They would maybe be a level three diagnosis?
3: Uh, That's correct. Uh, They have language. um, uh, One of them... uh, talks a little bit more than the other, um, but they need 24-hour assistance.
1: Right. Definitely. Definitely. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit, I think, first about that journey of diagnosis for you? I know um, that you struggled to figure out what was going on and then um, dealing with how to accept that. You know, we all, um, when we have kids with Um, sort of invisible disabilities struggle with finding answers and then accepting what the answers are and figuring out how to go forward. What was that like for you all?
3: It was hard uh, for us because, uh, remember, this was early uh, 90s. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had a son, a neurotypical son, that uh, was, you know, wonderful, calm, and uh, never had any problems and then the twins when they were about two they started um uh they were extremely hyper um climbing uh everywhere um eating things that not non-food like items they uh would eat uh wood uh the wood seal on the window or the be chewing on the chair it was right. just bizarre and very hyper they didn't have their uh they they didn't talk uh they had their own language but um it was gibberish right. and every time that we mentioned something about it uh, it was just oh now the boys you know boys are usually late um uh they have their own language, they're twins, uh, they'll grow out of it. At the time they were bilingual because I'm from Brazil and I was speaking Portuguese um, to them.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And so it kept, you know, pushing and the diagnosis was just, uh, uh, it never came. Um, so it was before, right before they turned five that we got the diagnosis of autism.
1: Right. And at that point, did you feel some relief?
3: We were in shock at first um, because I didn't know anything about autism. Autism for me was the rain man. And yeah, and the boys were not like that. Um, Even though Christian lined up things and it will be quiet in a corner. um, But uh, it gave me a name. It was like, okay, let's research now and see what we can find about autism and treatment and
2: let's go for it.
1: Yeah. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, I was going to say my position was after we heard the diagnosis, uh, okay, so, okay, we have a name for it. Uh, And I think I was thinking more as to how how do you fix it? You know, mm-hmm. take guy's perspective, and that is, okay, we, we know we've got issues here. We've been dealing with it for a long time and uh, really didn't know what to think, uh, whether it was a parenting issue or a medical issue or whatever it was, because you just don't know. You're thinking, okay, I've got an older son, Jonathan, who seems to be neurotypical, and I've got twin boys that are just going off the, you know, they're off the scale on a lot right. of different things. And we're just trying to, we're just hanging on by a thin uh, thread. So when when I heard the word autism, I didn't know what it was or what it meant. I was more concerned about fixing it than I was concerned about the actual you know, diagnosis. And then I asked the question, can you fix it? And they didn't say anything, meaning that nothing, when you say nothing, you're really saying we don't really have the answer for that. So Mm -hmm. that was, that was my concern. And I was, I was more in disbelief as far as not being able to fix it than I was about what it actually was.
1: So. Right. Yeah. And I actually noted that Anna had made a similar quote in the book. I was going to fix them. And that is, I think, a very common feeling yep. for yep. no matter what the diagnosis is ADHD, autism, where they are on those spectrums yep. is that our, intu- our intuition, our inclination as a parent even is to fix it you know kids get a boo-boo we put some cream on it and a band-aid you know we're fixers and getting through that piece of the journey is difficult and it requires this recognition that you're not going to fix it in that way that that that's not a possibility um and i i read too in your stories that you had a very different way of processing your feelings Uh, (laughs) about the diagnosis. (laughs) Do you want to talk a little bit about that and kind of what kind of friction that that um, caused for you to work on in in your marriage and your relationship too?
2: Well, let me just say this. Um, I don't know what year it was in the process where you, you figure, I don't know if it was the fifth year or the 10th year or the 15th year in the process, yeah. but at some point for me, I realized that it, we're probably not going to fix it as, as quickly as I had hoped to fix it mm-hmm. to get them back to some type of normality, at least what we would consider neurotypical. On the autism spectrum, so uh, with, with that being the case, uh, you know it uh, it it did take on a uh, it took on a different dimension uh, from the standpoint as to what my wife was thinking and what I was thinking, and I and I think it comes out in in, in the in the book as to our different perspectives on it yeah. and how it affected our marriage uh, to a certain degree. Now, you know, we you read the book and, and you say, okay, uh, they have a great marriage. Well, you gotta work at having a, a marriage of any kind, whether Absolutely. it be a good marriage or a great marriage.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And in our case, uh, you know, it, it took some time to get to the point where we were always on the same page. Now yeah. I, I tell people that when we're out talking together and we're out speaking to groups, I say, you know, I tell people this on a regular basis from a sports perspective, you know, my wife is the most valuable person because she has gone in there and taking taken on a lot of that responsibility uh that that comes into play. And I'm sure you you could relate to this, that mm-hmm. she 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 got in there, and got her hands in there. And started dealing with, you know, the medical issues, the, the behavior issues, the educational issues, and so on and so forth. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm there, but I'm not in it as as deep, perhaps as as she is. And you know, at some point, as, from a from a guy's or from a father's perspective, you know, just a sports related perspective. You come to realize just how valuable you both are in this process. It is a team concept, and we both have to work together on this and forget the differences, whether or not you're right or you're wrong. It's not a question of whether or not you're right or you're wrong, it's a question of okay, are we doing what is best for our children at this particular time? So that's kind of you know, I and I joke about the fact that in the book, you know, I I care my section carried the whole book, and I I kind of joke <laughs> about that with her, uh, but that that's that is so far from the truth that uh, it it is just it is a joke. So I I do make I do make comments about it to her on a regular basis as that, you know, that. but here's the other thing too that you might want to be aware of, and that is when we initially wrote the book we wrote it in a third person yeah. perspective and mm-hmm. that changed when we, when we hooked up with, uh, with Amazon and they wanted it in the first person. And I can tell you personally, I, I didn't like going to the first person because it gets personal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was hard to talk about for a long time. And yeah. it's difficult to talk about from, from my perspective, but I, kind of gotten used to it, I guess. But it's
1: such valuable work. I mean, that's part of the reason that I do what I do as well. It's really hard for me to be that vulnerable and open. But, you know, the feedback that I've gotten over the years about how, much less alone people feel when we share our stories. I mean, you know, it, it's hard, but you're changing lives. You're really impacting people in a very positive way. And and you're also um, really lifting the understanding of autism in our society, which we need so greatly. And it's come so far from when your kids were diagnosed and when you were starting out. But it's still, you know, we still have such a long way to go as well.
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I've heard many times when I talk to other parents and how much it helps them to hear from somebody else and to share when you share our story. Uh, it was just very hard to do it in the beginning, um, but mm-hmm. we got to the point where is uh, is the right time.
2: Yeah, and, and yeah. I think the other the other thing uh, that uh, that comes into play when you are sharing your story is that you know you just you never know you know who is going to impact. Yeah, yeah, uh, and uh, you know there there's an awareness. Of autism, but and disabilities in general. Uh, but I, I honestly believe that there needs to be more of an awareness of it and how 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 you you, you deal with it. But you know, I, I think the the message of awareness is out there, but it, it it needs to be a little bit stronger. And hopefully, you know, we can help uh, assist you Know from that end of
3: it, what I've had, uh, what I've heard from uh family members and friends that have read the book is that they wouldn't, uh, how much it changed them the way they will see a child or an adult having a meltdown, yeah, and uh, so they will be, uh, they won't be judging the parents or looking at it as a bratty child or bad parenting
1: parenting yeah
3: yes yes so which is uh, it it blesses me to know that people are getting that message that um, you shouldn't be so judgmental about um, what's happening around you
1: Yeah, you don't know everyone else's story. And that's really, for me, that's what having a special needs child taught me is so much more compassion and empathy, but also just really recognizing that we don't know what's behind the surface of all the other people that we run into in our lives. And, um, you know, that adds such a level of compassion for anyone who can can take away that message or get that feeling. So, you know, it's a real service to, to not just our kids, but also to families like ours. You know, we, we then get met with more understanding.
2: Yeah. 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 We take the, we've taken the approach from the beginning is that this is a story about love and faith and hope. And we hope that that message comes through yeah. to a certain Absolutely. degree yeah, and, uh, and, and love i mean we're, we're talking about unconditional love i mean yeah. there's a chapter where austin literally you know burns down the, burns house. Down oh, the
1: house yeah you, know, you,
2: you better have some unconditional love going <laughs> there when you realize that you know what he is what he's done and that really he he, he did not have a real clear understanding as to what he did right and, I think there were glimpses, and there still are glimpses, yeah. where he reminds us still of that day, and that month of February. His uh, behaviors yeah. tend to change quite a bit because he's keeps going back talking about the, the fire yeah. and what yeah. had happened, and and the situation that, would, that 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 had happened. But my point being is that unconditional love. Uh, it shows up on a lot of different levels and we have learned to love them regardless, uh, of, of the situation and the circumstances. And we will continue to love them and support them, uh, daily because it's, it's, as you know, uh, it's a daily, uh, issue. It's not, it's not a monthly issue. It's not a weekly issue. It's a, it's a daily issue and you basically are starting, uh, you're starting not over, but you're just starting the day off on a on what you you've already experienced on a regular basis. So
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it really is defining of your life when you have a child that requires that sort of um intense um attention. Yeah. And to have two, you know, that that had to have been even more obviously challenging. Um and it, you know, it, it reminded me as I was reading so many times, people, other parents will say to me um, that they can't stand when people say, I don't know how you do it. When yeah. someone who doesn't have a child with needs says to them, I don't know how you do it. Um, and I wondered what your response to that would be.
2: Well, our response, my response to it is, you don't really know what you can do. Until you are in a situation where you have to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, from our perspective, we have, we we are. I, I would I would like to say, and, and I may not be I- exact, but I would like to think that we are content mm-hmm. with where we're at. Some days, some hours, <laughs> some seconds, it changes. Sure, but. I would like to think that we're more along that line now than we were as far as the fixing aspect of it. And, you know, we, we just, it's not a matter of whether or not we want to deal with it. It's a matter of us having to deal with it. And it's a necessity that we do deal with it and put aside our own personal uh, disappointments about where they should be because, at this particular time in life, we should have. Normally, neurotypically, we should have twenty-four-year-old sons that are probably finished college, yeah, right. uh, and they may, uh, you know, they got a job and they're they're being, you know, normal like their like their brother. And I I keep using the word normal, but neurotypical. Where right. he's out, they're out working, they're out doing things, and they kind of, they're sort of, moving out of the nest. And um, we we do think about that, and uh, we 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 do, you know, think well. and we are we're missing out. Uh, but I think that's where I'm pretty sure that's where our faith kicks in, uh, and we we just go, okay, well, here's the situation that we're in uh we we may not like it this particular moment or that this particular day, but you yeah. know what we have to move forward so
1: yeah, and I think you know I talk a lot about um choosing to be a victim or choosing to be a survivor um, and there's you know a lot of psychological theory that goes along with that and and I think. You know that's part of the journey in this parenthood is making that shift from victim mentality to survivor mentality. and I saw that very clearly in your story that you you know in the end you said you feel at peace and that's you know a huge ac- not accomplishment, but you know it's it's a big deal um and not just for you yourselves individually, but also for your, for your whole family and for your boys, you know, that that you deal with on a daily basis can impact your kids and their um, behaviors and their feelings too.
3: Oh, yes, it does. Uh, Any, you know, it changes. There are days that you just feel bad and you just wish everything was different and and then you know just uh you go about your day and later on it's just you you end up finding joy in the Mm -hmm. little things and Mm -hmm. you, you remember you look at the little things the blessings and they're there um and might be you know a child that just said you did something for them and they said, thank you. And it's just like, wow, he recognized that I did something. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it, it, you in, end up uh, enjoying the little blessing, the little things that happen that just um, other parents, parents or neurotypical kids would take for granted. We, we take the little things uh, and run with it
1: yeah they're big things oh yeah in your life yeah yes yes yeah I wanted to backtrack for a second and talk about um there was a point where you I guess recognized that you gradually stopped inviting people over your life became more isolating I know um Kurt talks about that um his football friends and so forth were asking why he wasn't doing things that they were doing after retiring and um, wondered if you could talk a little bit about that, because I think, you know, that isolation in, in different degrees, you know, a lot of it for your family was very safety driven. um, But in different degrees, I think we all go through that when we're raising challenging kids.
3: I think our isolation was uh, part of the survival mode mm-hmm. that we were in at the time Uh the, the house was uh, when the boys were going through puberty, uh, the house was destroyed. I mean, there were holes everywhere. The doors were broken and uh, there was a lot of screaming and, uh, and head banging. And it was just, we were just trying to keep them safe. And uh, so to bring somebody in uh, or to invite somebody uh, for dinner uh, would have been a nightmare. Um,
2: mm-hmm.
3: And uh, and I think would scare most of people. Um, and uh, we just decided it was just, easier to just stay in and it wasn't even a decision it was the way things were happening uh we were uh really going uh, from fixing one hole and looking down the hallway and there was just a new one so yeah so it it, it, we were at that point we were so sad and hurt for the boys and concerned Mm -hmm. about their safety that we didn't even think about uh, uh, bringing people in and, or going out with them because it was, it was a nightmare. And uh, so it was, the isolation just happened and it felt, I guess, comfortable uh, for a while and then uh, it, it became our lives. So it was just yeah. part of it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, um, I was just looking here. I I had a quote written down from Kurt. I pretty quickly realized that what others thought was not very important, keeping the twins safe and as healthy as possible had to become our primary focus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is that survival mode, and you do really get caught into that place. Um, And sometimes we don't even recognize that we're isolating ourselves or that, you know, it doesn't register for a long time because it's, it's, it's maintenance. It's getting day to day. Yeah. Yeah.
3: And for Kurt, I think it was, uh, you know, his friends will go golfing or, you know, uh, uh, go on the trip or something. And it would just be, he would be like, I'm sorry, I can't, I'm too busy. And, or my wife needs me. And, uh, and, but never really going into details of what was happening uh, at home. Yeah. Yeah, that's a truth. That's a, that's, that's
2: yeah. a, that's a yeah. fair statement. I, <laughs> you, you try to explain it to someone. Oh, yeah. What's going on. And uh, and then to have someone come up to your house and you have holes kicked in, the yeah. walls, and the house looks like it's been through a war zone. It's It's kind of hard to... Have people over and try to explain it as to as to what's going on. So yeah, and so it it wasn't
1: really a place of shame, right? It was just easier and and knowing that people weren't going to understand.
3: Yeah, yeah. Because to explain, um, we had a couple families that our friends that would that knew what was going on, but to explain the depth. Of what was going on, uh, I think would scare people, and mm-hmm. uh, so you, I don't know, would chose just to say, "Oh, we can't. We're busy. I'm sorry. I don't have a sitter," or you know, yeah. and you just move on.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah, but you do have people in your lives. You were just saying a couple of friends who do understand yeah. Yeah. Um, your story and who you allow into your world, so to speak. And that's so valuable. I think we all have to have connections of some sort as human beings. And so you you find those people who um, can be that for you. Not everyone that you knew probably could really be that um, understanding and open and accepting and as those friends have turned out to be
3: yeah and we had when we got we moved from seattle uh down south to uh, the vancouver uh area in washington it's kind of the portland oregon area Mm -hmm. yeah right before a month before the boys were diagnosed so we had uh, new friends a new neighborhood you know new school district everything so it was just a couple friends uh that became very close friends and uh that were involved in our lives all our other friends were in seattle so they right. had no idea what was going on yeah they had no idea what was going on
1: yeah Yeah. And it it gets so consuming that you don't have the time or the the mental or emotional space Mm -hmm. to consistently try to explain it to people. I think (laughs) it really is kind of a self-preservation piece to it. Um, And I wanted to talk a little bit about... Self care, and the fact that um, I know, especially you, on talk a lot about how the kids were the priority, and you did not um, take good care of yourself, and ended up with some health ramifications from that stress. Um, we, I actually have a retreat every year. I think next year is going to be the eighth year called the Happy Mom Retreat, and it's just for moms of kids with these invisible neurological um disorders and and it's all about the self-care because we do um neglect ourselves but then we also have this extra layer of stress intense stress that can cause even more um physical consequences to our health and so i was really struck that you talked about that and uh, would love for you to share a little bit about that here too Okay. Well, with uh,
3: what a person that, uh, uh, that has a child with a disability, I think lives with chronic stress. And mm-hmm. uh, you end up um, that idea that, you know, we're going to put the airplane uh, when the masks come down, the oxygen mask, yep. and you put the mask on yourself first and then on your kid. I think I was doing the opposite. And I think a lot of moms do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they take care of your kid. Um, whatever they need, you are there. You are um, in a diet, a different diet. And uh, you are consumed by uh, that idea. Or that the, you have to take care of your kid because it, it, you see the results. That you see that it's making uh, some improvements when you're making those changes. And you dive in and uh, end up neglecting yourself and not eating right and not getting enough rest. And um, I ended up with chronic fatigue and Kurt ended up with Graves' disease. Um, So it was just, uh, just what happened. And after my diagnosis and changing my diet and concentrating on eating right and getting the right supplements and rest, I was able to use that uh, with my uh, doctor, my naturopath, and start making some changes on the boy's diet, and uh, so I could see the improvement, and and I realized, okay, I need to take care of myself. I need to, Mm -hmm. if I'm not well, the rest of the family is not well, so... And Kurt sees it. And, you know, if I need to go to bed early or if I need to, you know, sleep for 10 hours, 12 hours, he takes over and uh, and uh, he knows that I need the rest.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I share your story. I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia with some chronic wow. fatigue. Um, and I know many moms who have different thyroid issues Mm -hmm. and I think all of it is very much stress related and the fact that we neglect ourselves when we have these kids who just take so much more. Um, Yeah. The one other thing I wanted to be sure that we talked about was siblings. Um, Your son, Jonathan, I love that he has a little piece in the book from his perspective and that you talk about um, you know, making a concerted effort to make sure that he didn't feel left out or neglected. My, my daughter, who's older than my son, my daughter is neurotypical, um, developed a lot of anxiety and really struggled with that sibling piece. And it's just so important that we recognize, I think, what they go through as much as we can and to address it.
3: Yeah, for Jonathan, um, we, we made an effort to get Kurt to, you know, take him to sports activities and, and, uh, go out and do normal, normal things with him. And, right. uh, but after the fire, uh, Jonathan developed, uh, anxiety mm-hmm. and, uh, and, now he, uh, he has a great relationship with the boys, but it, it took some time for him to find peace yes. and, uh, and he still struggles with, uh, uh, anxiety and how to cope And, uh, but I thought it was important because usually the siblings don't have a voice Mm -hmm. and, uh, they are the ones neglected and left on the side. And, uh, I thought it was important for Jonathan too, since he was such an important part of this whole thing and what he experienced with the fire and, um, he needed to, uh, give the siblings a voice.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So, and Isabella too. I mean, she's a great uh, uh, little sister. Uh, Sometimes she, uh, in order for me to go to a grocery store, uh, I have to leave my 12 year old taking care of a 24 year old. Um, But, you know, it is what it is. And she's very responsible and very loving. And the boys love her and, uh, uh, listen to her. And, uh, it's really amazing to see their connection.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, the siblings are getting blessings too. It's hard to see that. And when they're young, it's super, you you know, it's almost impossible for them to see that. Um, My daughter is in college now, and she is starting to see, you know, she'll say things to me where I I recognize that she's really starting to understand, Um, but we did start making a very real effort to spend time alone with her that was Mm. only about her, that could not be interrupted by ADHD or autism or any of that. Um, and that made a big difference for her. Um, but she, you know, I think the anxiety is always there. She still struggles yeah. with anxiety. It's triggered in different ways now. But I think, you know, the experience is somewhat traumatic and that shapes the brain when a child is growing and and goes through, you know, trauma of different sorts.
3: I think, it, I, I, I'm not sure, but it ends up being almost like a PTSD mm-hmm. uh, because they... Their sleep uh, patterns are not uh, normal. They are, you know, it's a household that has a lot of screaming or hitting or, you know, a lot of different behaviors. Mm -hmm. And you live with that constant anxiety of, you know, uh, somebody opened the door. Did did the child leave the house? Or it's, it's constant. You always listening to see if there's something going on. And for uh, a young kid growing up like that, it's, it it is traumatic.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think there was actually a study not too long ago that looked at the stress levels of, I want to say it was just moms of kids with autism versus soldiers. And it was, in this study found that it was, um, almost equivalent, Yeah. which, you know, we, we think is shocking and can't be true, but, you know, PTSD comes in a lot of shapes and sizes and affects a lot of different people. And it's not just, um, you know, a war and, and soldier, um, diagnosis. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've certainly experienced it in some ways in my parenthood with my son and, different aspects of things that have happened that were traumatic, you know, like him chasing my car through traffic and one morning. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and so every time I've left him at the curb for the last six or seven years since then, I, my heart does a little flutter and I hesitate mm-hmm. and I watch and, you know, and, and that really is when you look at the definition of, of post-traumatic stress disorder, those are all the symptoms of that. And um, so it's very real. I think as parents, we minimize what we go through um, because, again, we think it's all about our children. Yeah. But we matter too. And and what we're going through is important for our kids too because they're absorbing that and they're, they're, they're seeing it and processing it. And um, for kids on the higher functioning end, we're modeling how you treat yourself as an adult and as yeah. a parent. So super important stuff. I'm really grateful that you... You shared that in your story as well.
3: I think it needs to be recognized that uh, we, uh, the parents, we need help. We need to take care of ourselves and uh, and uh, give ourselves a break too. Give us some yeah. grace.
1: Some respite. Yeah. Anything else that you um, wanted to talk about before we come to the end of this episode?
3: Anything, honey?
1: No, no, good. no. It was good. I covered it. I'm glad. I think so. Yeah. I think so. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And I feel honored and touched to have read your story. I know that it's going to greatly impact so many other people um, and so many other lives. And I know that it's not easy, but it's definitely um a worthwhile and fulfilling thing to put ourselves out there and be vulnerable and to share.
3: Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, if we can help, you know, one family, it's uh, totally worth it uh, to do what we did. We're happy that we were able to share our story and uh, impact uh, other families. And uh, uh, and I'm so, yeah. And I'm so happy that we got to talk to you.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. And your publisher actually gave us a chapter of the book to give away to the listeners. They oh. can visit the show notes page that we'll have for this episode, which is at parentingadhdandautism.com slash 049. And you will be able to download that free chapter of the book and get a taste of the book as well. And with that, I will end the episode and I will see everybody next time. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the Parenting ADHD podcast. If you connected with this episode, please share it on social media. Be sure to visit ParentingADHDandAutism.com to join the conversation and take advantage of Penny's online courses and summits, retreats, parent coaching, and fantastic bonus content.